Good evening. The government's big push today is levelling up with Michael Gove releasing a white paper, delivering it to the Commons, and we'll discuss tonight with you. Do you know what levelling up means? Is it, is it rather like the Northern Powerhouse under the previous Conservative government? Is it a vague concept? Or could it actually work? You tell me. Will levelling up work? Farage at gbnews.uk. But ahead of that, an announcement in Northern Ireland in the course of the last hour and the Agriculture Minister has announced that checks in the Irish Sea, those contentious checks of goods that are coming from the mainland United Kingdom to Northern Ireland, will end from midnight tonight. Now, in many ways, this is the Northern Irish Minister deciding he can't wait any longer. The British government clearly have no intention of a short term of triggering Article 16. They feel that Northern Ireland has effectively been cut off from the rest of the United Kingdom by the Northern Ireland Protocol, by the Brexit Agreement. I say they've every reason to believe that is right. And so they've taken this action. Quite how this will be responded to by the British government in the next couple of days, I'm not sure. And the European Union, well, they, of course, will be furious. And there is a meeting due next week between Liz Truss and Marcus Sefcovic, sorry, from the European Union. So let's go over right now to Belfast to join Doogie Beattie, GB News's Northern Ireland reporter. Now, Doogie, of course, we mustn't forget that there are elections taking place to the Northern Ireland Assembly. And in many ways, this is the DUP putting down a marker, isn't it? Well, you could think that way, but I think more than anything, the most unionists, the only thing that the protocol has managed to do is unite unionism. And because of the lack of consent uh, inside the protocol, uh, basically unionists have no say. The European Courts of Justice will look across any divergence between UK laws and the EU. This part of the United Kingdom will be caught inside EU laws and regulations. There's no MEPs here. I continually say this. The only MEPs on the island of Ireland are in the Republic of Ireland and Sinn Féin and the SDLP with their sister party Fianna Foyle do have MEPs. So unionists here feel very, very isolated and say we are now a colony. So they have decided that they may not even take part in uh, elections here in Northern Ireland. And if they do, it will probably be a long, long time before this institutions are back up again after May. But on the other side of that coin, Sinn Féin have really checked out of Northern Ireland, out of this assembly here. They see the power now being in Dublin. They are the largest party in the Irish Republic. And they would love to take on Fianna Gael or Fianna Foyle in an election in the South. And therefore, if, these, if this claps behind me, that the previous agreement of uh, the um, Anglo-Irish agreement brought in joint authority between London and Dublin, Sinn Féin would not have to go through anything here to have power in Northern Ireland. And you mentioned the, the word consent a moment ago. And, of course, that word was an important part, wasn't it, of the Belfast Peace Agreement. So do the unionists actually have some right, genuine right, to act in the way they are? 
Well, you can see their point. I mean, we reported back in October with the PUP, the, the Progressive Unionist Party. They, they're the sort of the equivalent to Sinn Féin. They were the political wing of the loyalist paramilitaries. They withdrew their support for the Good Friday Agreement because they said they signed up to the, the Good Friday Agreement because of consent. And now Northern Ireland is lost in the middle of this. And I'm afraid if that if this isn't addressed quite quickly, we could be heading for very dark days in Northern Ireland. But Liz Truss visited here last week, and when she was asked about uh, the potential for Edwin Pooch to do this, she basically said no, uh, the British government weren't getting involved, it was a devolved matter, and it would be up to the executive. Now, Edwin Pooch took this to the executive last Thursday, and because everything has to be jointly agreed between First and Deputy First Minister, they're basically both exactly the same, uh, Michelle O'Neill of Sinn Féin, the Deputy First Minister, refused to put it on the table, and Edwin Pooch has took this decision by himself. Yes, and I mean, Liz Truss can't walk away from this and say it's purely a devolved matter because the agreement with the European Union was signed by the British government. She is going to be the main representative of it next week in that meeting with Sefcovic. London has to give some kind of answer to this, doesn't it? Well, they do, and this was Boris Johnson's oven-ready deal. But what he didn't, <laughs> while he was signing one international agreement... He, he was overriding uh, an international peace agreement that has been hailed across the world and as a roadmap for other ones in the Middle East. And he has broke that first agreement, i.e. the Good Friday Agreement, and the EU are quite happy to do so to protect the integrity of their single market. So the goods now that are coming into Northern Ireland from the UK will probably have to be checked somewhere about the Irish border. That creates a problem for Sinn Féin, it creates a problem for Fianna Gael, and it creates a problem for Fianna Foyle. Yeah, we've not heard the last of this, Doogie. Thank you very much indeed. Um, let's go now to Darren McCaffrey, GB News's political editor. Darren, they can't get away with saying this is a devolved matter, can they? I'm not hearing Darren. So when we get the sound sorted out, we will come back to Darren. Um, also happening, before we discuss levelling up, also happening, yesterday we had on the breakfast show here David Davis, and he was asked about what was happening with the Prime Minister. And he said he's going to die the death of a thousand cuts, by which he means pillars of support, one by one, would gradually be removed. We saw the resignation of the first PPS earlier on in the week. We saw you know, senior figures like Andrew Mitchell withdrawing their support earlier in the week. Uh, yesterday, the Conservative Member of Parliament for Waveney, a Mr Aldous, withdrew his support. And that death of a thousand cuts, as Davis described, seems to have picked up a bit of pace today. Darren McCaffrey, can I hear you? No, I can't hear him. So there we are. I will, I will get on with it myself. So today, three more Conservative members of Parliament have decided they can no longer support the Prime Minister and they've put letters in to the 1922 committee. Now, we know when it reaches the number of 54, that will trigger a leadership process within the Conservative Party. But it is happening. Bit by bit, people are losing support in the Prime Minister. And it does have to be said that on the 
world stage, he's beginning to become a bit of a figure of fun. Uh, even the White House press secretary yesterday uh, making a, a joke um, about cake. Uh, we've had, well, the Russian press, of course, have rubbished him. You would expect that. Um, and it was pretty embarrassing for the Prime Minister to be in Kiev yesterday, having not spoken to President Putin. That just did not work. Now, he has spoken to President Putin today. I'll tell you more about that later in the show. But he's really having a difficult time, as I say, those withdrawing publicly their support for the Prime Minister. That list is growing. And I know there's a number of you at home watching this programme, watching GB News, who think I've been Boris bashing. All I will say to you is this. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. It is a matter of trust. And I think when that trust goes, it's very difficult to win it back. And out there in the country, there are millions of people who voted Conservative in December 2019 who have lost that trust. So uh, this is not a good situation for the Prime Minister at all. I still stick by what I've been saying. He won't be our leader by the 1st of July. And a lot of people don't like that because they're Boris fans, but that is just the way that it's going. One or two bits of reaction to the whole levelling up um, agenda and indeed reaction to what Edwin Poots has done. Steve says, at last, a politician with guts. How refreshing. Another says, well done, Pootsie, for standing up to our gutless government. Ian says, do you believe the government will ever sort out these problems with this issue by May of this year? Well, we'll just have to see. Let's have a, a, a think about Michael Gove, shall we? You know, Michael Gove today delivering his 12 missions to level up the United Kingdom. And to me, uh, when he talks about the fact that areas like transport should, by 2030, be as good around the rest of the United Kingdom as they are in London. When he talks about wealth spreading out. Firstly, I do genuinely think this looks a bit like a child's wish list to Father Christmas. Secondly, I'm actually unsure what the strategy is. Is it just to throw money at the red wall seats? Or is it to try, through incentives, to encourage businesses to establish themselves there? Namely, are they going for a conservative, free market approach? Or are they going for very much more of a statist approach? I'm confused as to what that's going to be. I'll be joined after the break by Liam Halligan, our economics editor, who is, who is himself right now up in the northwest of England. I'm going to say third time lucky in going to our poled, Darren McCaffrey. Darren, good evening. Can, can you hear me, Nigel? Four I can. Very good evening. Darren, my first point marvelous, to you... Marvellous, marvellous. <laughs> my first point to you was that in terms of what Edwin Poots, the minister in Northern Ireland, has done today, Liz Truss can't hide behind the fact this is a devolved matter. She's got a meeting with Sefcovic, the European uh, Commissioner next week. Uh, the UK government have to respond to this, don't they? 
Indeed, uh, this is very tricky, and very tricky, it must be said, not just uh, for the British government, and I say that because in many ways Edmund Poots has acted unilaterally uh, tonight yeah. in making that move. It is not clear whether he's got the ability to actually command uh, these civil servants to do so. Ultimately, uh, they might argue they're acting under British law or international law. Uh, ultimately, Westminster is sovereign in all of uh, this. And the reason I also add on it is tricky is because ultimately Edmund Booth says he has sought legal advice but under the agreement, there needs to be essentially agreement amongst Sinn Féin and the DEP, the, all of the executive, which clearly uh, there isn't. So it's not entirely clear just what ground he is standing on. But what is clear is clearly the DUP are fed up with all of this. As you rightly point out, they're fed up with this idea that the British government is going to trigger Article 16, which they've talked about for the last six to nine months, yet frankly uh, <laughs> given no indication that it's actually... Yeah. Uh, going to happen. Uh, and so Downing Street may well just sit back and let this play out, uh, or it will get to the point where they may well have to intervene. And in doing that, the key figure will be the EU. How will the European Union react to all of this uh, tonight? We've yet to hear from them, but we have heard from Simon Coveney, of course, the Irish foreign minister, in the last couple of minutes. He has said that it effectively is a breach of international law and that it is really unhelpful to the EU-British talks trying to reach a compromise. In the end, I think at the EU you decide to take a hard line on this, if the action goes ahead, the British government are going to have to make a decision. Who are they going to back? Are they going to back the DUP in this and let yep. this go ahead? Or are they going to essentially say we need to strike a deal and that the DUP are not allowed to go ahead with ordering civil servants no, no, to stop uh, these checks? They, they have got to make a very, very clear decision and they've got just a few days in which to do it. Um, finally, Darren, quickly, I was making the point to the audience that... Those people publicly now saying they cannot support the Prime Minister, has, that's rather picked up pace today, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. Three more letters in, including uh, the Chair of the Defence Select Committee, Tobias Elwood. A drip-drip effect throughout the day it might even allude to the fact that this is somewhat orchestrated. And there was a sense, I think, of anyone who watched Prime Minister's Question Time this afternoon. Keir Starmer didn't go on party gate. He instead focused on the cost of living crisis. Uh, the Prime Minister put in a pretty good show, uh, to be fair to him. There was a sense that maybe this was starting to ease away. But these letters continue to go in. We don't frankly know how many but more and more publicly are coming out every day. It only does need to get to 54. And I think this is still really uncomfortable uh, for the Prime Minister. And it's interesting, isn't it, Nigel, when you read what these MPs have to say, it really gets to the heart of the Prime Minister's character to a large degree about mistruths and trust, yep. but also this sense that they just do want this controversy and scandal to go away. And frankly, at the moment, for those MPs and for many who are not public, that's the greatest fear is when does this end? And there is, frankly, no end in yeah. sight. No, there's not. Darren, I will see you in Blackpool tomorrow evening. And thank you very much indeed. In a moment, we'll examine in more depth Michael Gove making his levelling up announcement. And I'm going to ask you, is it actually going to work? It's levelling up day. Michael Gove produces a white paper proudly tells the House of Commons it will transform this country. Well, we can only hope 
that he's right. But do people really understand what levelling up is? Do people believe it's going to work? Well, Susan says to me, there's no money for it. It's just an attempt to save their own skins. They can waste $8 billion on rubbish PPE, but not invest in the people of this country. So sad. And the $8 billion, so remember the other day we talked about the $4.3 billion that's been lost in fraud through bounce-back loans and all the other government projects. Overnight, we learned, and the Daily Mail led with this in a very big way today, that eight billion quid's worth of PPE has been binned. So there is waste here on a huge scale. And when you add up the 4.3 and the 8, you get to a figure even bigger than the amount our taxes will rise by on the 1st of April. One viewer says, spending everywhere, but no mention of tax cuts. Well, I think tax incentives, you know, back in the 80s, uh, when we first saw big car plants going to the northeast like Nissan, you know, these had been declared enterprise zones. I understood what that was all about. I get the concept of free ports, which Boris Johnson is pushing hard. I still don't fully understand how, myself, how levelling up gets put into place. Elspeth on Twitter says, it's all just a distraction from his failings. Treats us like idiots, we can see right through him. There's some real anger out there. Sharon says, not a cat in hell's chance of it working. Another viewer says, the short answer is no. There is not any money, it's just old funds being juggled about. Well, you know, it's interesting this, because the idea that you can level up a country by just taking money from one area and chucking it at another area, I'm not sure that's the answer. You see, after the Berlin Wall came down, Germany decided it would level up. It would transfer huge funds from the wealthy Germany to the very much poorer East Germany. And yet, you know, 30 years on, East Germany is still very much poorer than West Germany. And I think just this idea that chucking money at a problem, chucking government money at a problem, will solve the problem. I don't think it works. I've seen in my 20 years in the European Parliament, public money spent in large amounts not actually achieving its goals. I think levelling up needs to be a lot more ambitious than just throwing money at the problem. Well, that's my view, but let's go to GB News' economics and business editor, Liam Halligan. Liam, good evening. We need some patience this evening. We're here in Blackpool. Liam, levelling up. Tell us what it means. Well, as you say, Nigel, it's difficult to know, particularly when you look at this 250-page white paper produced by Michael Gove today, MP for Surrey, of course, a prosperous part of southern England. It was dismissed by his Labour shadow uh, for levelling up, Lisa Nandy, MP for Wigan, as indicative of a, as a government that's out of energy and it is out of ideas. There was a 12-point plan, a lot of initiatives across housing, transport, infrastructure and education, as Mr Gove says, to reinvigorate forgotten areas of the UK. On the other hand, there is no additional money for these initiatives and a lot of this 12-point plan the white paper admitted won't be delivered until 2030 at the earliest. Yeah, Liam, you know, I heard Jacob Rees-Mogg at the weekend describing levelling up as this great incentive for business, 
with incentives, with cuts in regulation. I mean, a really traditional conservative free market argument for what levelling up was. And then I hear Michael Gove talking about money. I mean, do they know themselves here what they're really trying to do? You and I talk often, Nigel, on screen and indeed in the GB News newsroom about what the Conservative Party stands for philosophically. Mm. Is it a party of low tax and incentives for business and for people to go to work? Or is it a party, as it seems to be to some eyes under Boris Johnson, of much, much higher spending, albeit a lot of that spending has been during this pandemic? Does levelling up mean more government spending? In my view, I always thought of it as a scheme of tax incentives, free ports, enterprise zones, the sort of things that you were just talking about, but turbocharged on speed, if you like, to bring in more investment from around the country and indeed from around the world to tap into the undoubted entrepreneurial energy and vim that has been here for years, untapped in places like Burnley, where we were today, in places like Macclesfield, where we were the day before, in places like Blackpool, where I'll be broadcasting on the money tomorrow at 1pm. Darren McCaffrey will be broadcasting his political uh, uh, programme at 3pm. And indeed, you will be here tomorrow night, Nigel, here in Blackpool. All of us trying to work out what levelling up really is and always asking the local people what they think. Is there a danger, Liam? Finally, is there a danger that by talking so much about levelling up in the run-up to a 2019 general election in which many of those seats like Blackpool became, you know, Conservative... Is there a danger they've raised public expectation of what is going to happen in their areas to who to too high a degree? I think there is a danger. In Burnley, where we were earlier today, they haven't had a Tory MP since 1910, and they got one in 2019 on the promise not just of getting Brexit done, but also levelling up. Same here in Blackpool. Blackpool South now has a Tory MP after having a Labour MP for a long time. The government wants levelling up to be the centrepiece of its relaunch, moving us on from Partygate, from Downing Street shenanigans and Westminster theatrics. But it seems to me, talking to many people in Macclesfield, in Burnley, and I'm sure in Blackpool too, when we get down to it tomorrow, that there is a lot of, I wouldn't say scepticism, but weary cynicism yeah. that the Tory party really believes that they can really make, make, make amends for previous political hurt that they've caused in these northern and midland seats. They were lent their votes, the Tories, by seats like this in 2019. If Boris Johnson can't retain those seats, he'll lose his majority. Yeah, no, it's as simple as that. Liam, I will see you in Blackpool tomorrow evening and thank you. Now, the issue of migrants and, in particular, the cross-channel illegal trade in migrants was given a bit of a kickstart this morning when the French president, Emmanuel Macron, basically said it's all the fault of the Brits and anyone that drowns in the channel, it's our fault. Even though, of course, the 27 that drowned not so long back all drowned on the French side of the divide. But today, Home Affairs Select Committee. Firstly, we saw Tricia Hayes, second permanent secretary to the Home Office, say this about the housing of those that have come either across the channel or recently from Afghanistan. 
Uh, we have been doing a lot of work recently with the local government association and with, and with other councils to um, see how we can um, how, how we can uh, develop a new way of working with local authorities for asylum schemes, uh, which uh, recognises, uh, as the Home Secretary said, the absolute I mean, financial as well as yeah. um, policy imperative of cutting the costs that we're currently incurring in hotels, which is now racking up at about £1.2 million mm. every single day. To get a handle on that, the hotel bill the government is paying for those who've come into this country and are now claiming asylum is £1.2 million every single day. There are 25,000 people in this situation living in hotels in our country. What did the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, have to say about this? My views on all of this are pretty well known and documented. It is a thoroughly inadequate policy. Um, it is not something that we want. And this is part of the reason why there is a lot of wider work taking place on asylum accommodation. We do not want people in hotels. Um, we are looking at dispersed um, accommodation, first and foremost. Um, we are looking at using and working with our partners in MOD, again, on alternative sites and alternative accommodation. It's right that we do that. And with that, of course, we are looking as part of the new plan for immigration, work on reception centres. We should not be housing people in hotels. Well, there's the Home Secretary saying, hotels aren't the answer, we have to find lots more alternative accommodation. Well, Home Secretary, you're going to have to find a lot more alternative accommodation and probably many more hotels because in Kent, over the course of the last few weeks... The reception centres for those crossing the channel. It's not just Dover anymore. No, one's opened at Lyd, one's opened at Manston, and the one at Dover actually is being expanded. There are now three reception centres in Kent, and that is because the Home Office expect at least 65,000 people to cross the English Channel this year, all of whom will have to house. That's after, of course, we've given them a new, brand new mobile phone and my intelligence says there are quite a number of boats queuing up to cross the channel overnight no doubt we'll hear more about that on gb news tomorrow now today the prime minister did finally have that phone call with vladimir putin but the phone call of course took place after his meeting in the ukraine but the spokesman put out a statement saying the Prime Minister spoke to the Russian President Putin this afternoon. The Prime Minister expressed his deep concern about Russia's current hostile activity on the Ukrainian border. He emphasised the need to find a way forward which respects both Ukraine's territorial integrity and right to self-defence. The Prime Minister stressed that any further Russian incursion into Ukrainian territory would be a tragic miscalculation. The PM underscored that under NATO's open-door policy, all European democracies have a right to aspire to NATO membership. This right fully applies to the Ukraine. He also reiterated that NATO is a defensive alliance. The leaders agreed that aggravation was in no one's interest. Now, there's something about that statement I want to go through with you. Ever since the Berlin Wall fell 30 years ago, it has been the policy of British governments, it has been the policy of NATO and the European Union to expand ever eastwards. That has been seen ever since those early days as a provocative act by Moscow. Now, I'm not saying that it is a provocative act, but there is always a degree, a historical degree, of Russian paranoia about any level of encroachment 
on what they see as their space. And Boris Johnson, I would say this to you. At this moment, with 130,000 Russian troops massed on the border, to say that you would welcome the Ukraine to join NATO seems to me to be yet another huge geopolitical error. We ought to say Ukraine will not be joining NATO, and therefore, Mr Putin, your reason for massing those troops on the border simply has gone and put the, pool, put the ball back in his court. British Prime Minister has chosen to go along with all the other global leaders with that response. I believe it's the wrong one. Now, overnight, a very interesting, though perhaps controversial, report from the John Hopkins University assessing in America and in Europe what the effect of lockdowns were. Did they reduce the number of people that died. Well, it is controversial. And, and Jonas Herbie, who's the author of the Hopkins Institute study on lockdowns, joins me now. Jonas, good evening. Good evening. So what did you conclude that lockdowns, surely by locking down, by, keep, by keeping us away from each other, we must have reduced the numbers of people that died during this pandemic? Uh, yeah, our study shows that... Uh that the lockdowns uh, didn't really work as well as we uh, expected. Uh, we did a meta review uh, where we look at uh, all the evidence there are uh, that links lockdowns to uh, reductions of uh, COVID death. And we find that the average lockdown in, uh, in Europe and United States uh, only reduced mortality by 0.2%. 0 0.2%? So yeah, nothing near the... What we were proposed, uh, what we were promised uh, in the beginning of the pandemic. So, yeah. And, 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 and how do you how do you calculate that figure? How do you come to that figure? Uh, we haven't calculated anything ourselves. We have uh, looked at all the studies that other researchers have done, uh, and then we collect all of them and and take the basically we take the average of all their estimates, uh, and the average estimate is uh, this is zero point two percent. So kind of, kind of meager uh, effect. Uh, and we think the explanation to why uh, the effect is so uh, little is that people know how to take care of themselves. Uh, when there's a pandemic in the country, people adjust their behavior uh, and they cancel birthdays and parties and meetings and so on. I'm sure all of the listeners and you uh, experienced that in the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and, and that causes the... Uh, infection rates to drop, uh, despite, uh, even if there's no lockdown. Okay, so people so lock themselves down, basically. Okay, so, so behavioural change and people not mixing closely did make a difference, but you're arguing it was done by people making their own minds up rather than being told by government to do so. Exactly, exactly. That's what we, uh, we think. We don't look into it uh, in our study. Uh, we only look at uh, the effect of lockdowns, but when we don't find uh, any effect, it's... Uh, it's natural to, to discuss why we don't see that. And, uh, and we've seen a lot of studies that point to uh, the behavioral uh, changes. Um, so they are very important. Um, and I think all, everybody, can, everybody can relate to that, that in the beginning of, beginning of the pandemic, um, we did uh, wash our hands and keep a distance and, and so on. Uh, and for instance, uh, on, on stay-at-home orders, uh, there's, there's several ways you can leave your home and still... Uh, stay safe. Uh, so, 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 Jonas, so that's why we probably don't find a big uh, effect on if, that. 
If your report becomes accepted in time, we will then look back on governments on both sides of the Atlantic and say they made a huge historic error with these lockdowns that actually hurt a lot of people. Uh, yeah, we, we don't look at the cost of lockdowns, but it's uh, it's very uh, natural to to think that they they're rather big. Uh, but it's important to uh, to think about who locks who down. Uh, as, as I told you, there's a, a large uh, share of the effect is because we react to the pandemic. Uh, so a lot of the costs are because uh, we, we take care of ourselves. Uh, yeah. so, okay. so it's not all costs that are related to the lockdown. But, but of course, locking people down is, expe is, expen is expensive. Yeah, in lots and lots of different ways. Jonas Herbie from the John Hopkins Institute, thank you. And that debate that you've just heard there this will go on for years. We will argue and debate for years whether what government did in terms of locking us down, taking away our liberties, uh, stopping many people getting all sorts of cancer checkups, of diabetes screening. The debate will go on for years as to how Western governments handled this, and I suspect they won't come out of it very well. So, back to our thoughts on this whole levelling up agenda. And I was pleased to see, actually that Liam Halligan, our economics and business editor, is as confused as I am in terms of what the government really intends to do. As for your views, one viewer says, of course it won't work. Not under Johnson and his blasé spending. Kim says, Boris could level up by opening coal and gas fields, which would create jobs that are needed, get fracking and forget net zero. Well, I'm absolutely all for forgetting net zero. I can't see why we should it really inflict upon ourselves such an act of self-harm. Ian says, the only valid way to level up is to work hard, use your ability as best as possible, take some risks and take opportunities when offered. Well, that is all pretty good advice. Well, interestingly, all those comments on gas and net zero, I'm going to be joined in a moment by somebody who was Minister for Energy and Climate Change, also a former Treasurer of the Tory party. In a moment, I'll be joined on Talking Pints by Lord Jonathan Marland, the Conservative Pip. The GB News pub is well and truly open this evening, and Lord Jonathan Marland, Conservative peer, joins me. Welcome to Talking Pints. Good, good health. Mm. Now, we have a, a couple of things in common. We decided to skip university and head straight for the city of London. It was a fun place to work in those days, wasn't it? Incredible, wasn't it? <laughs> Did you go to the George and Vulture? Do you remember that? Regularly, Simpsons, yes. Yes. All that. Yes. I mean, it was... We didn't do a lot of work, did we, really? Well, I, I think I, actually I kind of did. <laughs> we started our first business when we were 25, or I, I started in the first business when we were 25, and it was full on because we were, and you remember this, a young lad coming to the city, you know, it was all quill pens and dead man's shoes, and we were sort of like spivs on the block. Um, and so we, uh, at 25, starting in a new business and starting... Uh, in the Lloyd's insurance industry was like sort of, hang on. A strange on. thing to do. Well, it was, and we got a lot of criticism and people, we were sort of 25 years younger than the next comp competition. And then, of course, Lloyd's went bust, basically, and um, it was an incredible period of stress as we sort of tried to help rebuild it. Yeah. 
So I, I, I'd have to say it was very hard work. I think, I think I've had two incredible spells of hard work. That was that period. And then when I was a government minister, which is like, you know. Yeah, the difference, of course, is if you have success in the commercial world and insurance as you do, uh, you can make money, you can lose money, but you have actually a private life as well at the weekends. <laughs> you can go and play golf or do whatever you want to do. Uh, what, what pushed you into politics? Um, it was an odd thing. People kept saying to me when I was in my late 20s, you, you'll go into politics. And I sort of thought, you must be daft. Um, and uh, I, I sort of thought this was absolutely ridiculous. And I'd, I'd pretty much given up working in the city when I was about 37, 38. And um, I met Michael Howard. And Michael Howard said, you ought to give it a go. And uh, I've always been a huge, oh, I am a huge fan of Michael's. Um, he was a man of great integrity and... I mean, obviously he was criticised in many ways like any politician, but he, he's always been a... He's got rare things in a politician, complete loyalty and a great personal integrity. And uh, I like that in him. And um, uh, I got involved in his campaign to be leader, yeah. um, the unsuccessful one, when he did the deal with Haig and Haig decided not to uh, pursue that. And it's sort of, you know, you know what politics are like, but Nigel... It's, it's a drug. Yeah, it's like a lobster pot, isn't it? You see the bait, <laughs> in you go, you can't get out. I know all about it. Exactly. You talk about backing Howard and Howard's qualities and personal integrity. Yeah. You also, of course, have known Boris Johnson very well for a long time. And the big question that's being asked now are questions about his, his personal integrity and mm. his relationship with the truth. Mm. Well, you know, the, the, the people have different qualities and uh, if you look at Boris's qualities which are totally different Michael's as you want to compare them and, and in many ways similar to your own you know Boris gets up every morning and thinks everything is possible and you have those similar yep. tra traits yourself and I, I do too he's got enormous enthusiasm huge energy great drive uh, he's got incredible charisma and, and uh, arguably like you can reach parts that the electorate of the electorate that haven't been reached before. And it'll be a big mistake for the Conservative Party to... Uh, but I, but I return to the point, you know, you, you, you talked about personal integrity. Yeah. Michael Howard. I, I wouldn't question that for a moment. Yeah. Um, but it's Boris's integrity that's on trial now, isn't it? Correct. And we've seen three more MPs today... Yeah. ..have withdrawn their support. I mean, he's not going to survive this, is he? Well, I'm not sure about those MPs' integrity. I mean, if they actually put the nation first, they wouldn't want to be having a... Con well, just, sorry, Nigel. If they wouldn't want to be having a Conservative leadership campaign that's going to take eight weeks... Yep. Uh, ..of infighting as people posture for position, uh, they wouldn't want that and shouldn't want it at this particular time of national importance. And this is an incredibly important next few months, I think, for the country as you, I hope, would agree, the Brexit dividend has got to be well and truly sorted out uh, and hasn't been. Uh, the Why? Well, I think uh, they've been derailed, but I don't think they've realised that they have got to, to sort it. And I think once it registers... But they've got uh, an 80-seat majority on the... Yeah, but, you know, they've had Covid and crosswinds and, and, and all... I get the Covid yeah. thing, and I do understand that. And you, like, you and I yeah, both want to push him, want to push them really hard yes. to get that Brexit dividend. And uh, I, I'm doing as such. 
Uh, so that we've got to have the Brexit dividend. We've got a real challenge on energy crisis, as you have, have enunciated. And, you know, there hasn't been planning for the transition to net zero. There really hasn't been enough planning for transition to net zero. But that's the other problem, isn't it, Jonathan? You know, Boris was elected as a Conservative. He's leading as a Liberal. <laughs> the commitment... Well, that's my... You know, <laughs> the, the, Thank God we're in a pub. <laughs> well, that's a great thing about this. There's a great thing about this part of the show. We can have a chat. You know, the, and you can say what you like. <laughs> the, <laughs> and neither side takes offence, you know. But the commitment to net zero. Here we are, a country producing less than... I don't know. And you were there as the Minister for Energy and Climate Change. Less than 1% of the world's CO2. We're prepared to beggar our industries put people's bills through the roof. Mm. I mean, how have we got to the point where 25% of people's electricity bills already a green subsidy? There's something wrong here, isn't there? Well, I, I, I'm not going to disagree with you. I mean, I, I think what is also wrong is this sort of business of littering the countryside with solar panels, taking away farmland which could be used, which we're going to be desperate for food security, mm -hmm. rewilding, all these sort of things which are not practical policies. You're pretty sceptical of much of this government, aren't you, Richard? No, I'm sceptical about some <laughs> of the government. I, I, and and, and, and uh, the, those elements I am, and I've been quite clear. You know, Boris has got to lose the fluff from his policies and get back to okay. core policies which he believes in and which your old friend Linton Crosby uh, would advise him on, and, and, and Linton would call it getting the barnacles off the boat. And I think that is uh, going to be the challenge. And, and if he can show that, he deserves a chance to deliver it. He deserves a chance to deliver the, um, uh, you know, the levelling up. Yeah. Well, we'll come to levelling up in a moment. And we've been debating it all evening. None I've of, heard you. I mean, none of us know what it means. <laughs> what does it mean? Well, we had the Northern Powerhouse with Osborne. And I never knew what that meant and nothing ever happened. Um, and now we have levelling up. But I want to get back to this point about energy and climate change. Mm. I mean, just give us in 30 seconds the Marland solution. What do we do about our energy requirements going ahead? Well, I've always been a strong believer in gas. Um, and being, and when, we were, when I was in, in that department, we, we realised that gas was going to be the backstop. I was actually quite keen on fracking and, and, and uh, asked the department to set up the office of fracking so that we could really understand it because that is cheap homeland energy security. Lots of jobs. I, I, and lots of jobs. I'm also keen on uh, the transition to a greener economy because it's better for um, our emissions. Uh, you rightly say in, in the context of the world our emissions are minor, but mm. it is good housekeeping. It is something that uh, we should be looking at. I think you know, recycling, reusing of... Uh, of, uh, of, of plastics, and in fact, not having plastic at all would be a terribly good thing. I'm amazing. Everything you open these days has got layers and layers of plastic. Yeah. We go through about four layers. Of well, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with you on any of this. Well, I don't I disagree mean, with you I mean, on I mean, it. Those of us that are questioning net zero are not saying let's go back to burning coal on a huge scale. I mean, no. China and India are doing that anyway. But it's just this cost on people's bills, the cost that's already there, the proposed move to heat pumps... Um, electric cars are more expensive. To me, it's a sort of very upper-middle-class, wealthy group of people around Boris Johnson have, 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 have convinced him this is the right thing to do. But for ordinary folk, this is not affordable, is it? Well, I think there's a large part of the electorate, and particularly the younger generation, who see this as the future. So I don't think it's a coterie of upper-middle-class people around Boris persuading him. I think there is a general... 
uh, mood uh, and understandable mood within the country that uh, we have got to uh, manage the earth better than we are doing. We have got to um, um, stop throwing pollutants into the world. And uh, I think it's a perfectly reasonable and acceptable policy. The the issue is, and this is where I think you and I do, the Venn diagram does uh, cross, is what is the transition? How do we get from there to there? Because it is not possible to go to net zero today um, without there being a massive cost no, I know. on I the know. taxpayer. I know, I know. Jonathan, I must ask you, as somebody that was Tory party treasurer, there are always arguments over party funding. Mm. Uh, now, of course, I have to say I far prefer private individuals giving money to politics than state funding of politics. You know, where you have state funding of politics, you have state regulation of parties, and, and, and that worries me. But the connection between donors and then becoming members of the House of Lords, it stinks. The country hates it. <laughs> no, the country hates it. Yes, yeah. Well, you're probably asking the wrong person, <laughs> because I obviously was, have given money to the party. Um, I, I then sort of hoped to pay it back when I was a minister and worked for, yeah. for nothing. But the, the, when I became treasurer, the first thing I did was impose a rule that you couldn't give more than 50000 a year to the party during a calendar year, with the exception of election year. And I felt that was a reasonable figure, and I felt the public would live with that figure because it wasn't, mm. you know, 50,000 is a lot of money, I grant you, but it's not five million or a yeah. billion and a half. And I thought that was uh, a good discipline. Um, in an election period, you have this huge, intense period where you've got to raise, you were going from six million a year, you've got to raise 20 million a year. And you've obviously that's got okay, to... That's okay, but should big donors go to the House of Lords? Well, I, I, I think the, the criteria for going to the House of Lords is as follows. One, have you made a big contribution to society? Have you done things outside of uh, your business career? Not, not just to a party, not just a big contribution <laughs> no, to a party. No, no, I'm talking business contribution. I know you. You are such a cynic. <laughs> I'm just teasing you, that's all. <laughs> no, I was teasing. Was it? <laughs> um, but you, you, you've, got to, you've okay. got to have built a, a substantial business or done some, uh, you know, something very big creative. Team. Yeah. You've got to have made a contribution to things outside of your business and wealth. Mm. for the benefit of society. Mm. And, you know, if by chance you've given half a million quid to a party, whatever it is... Well, you know, those, those are... Th- th- I tell you what, the next, time, the next time there's a big House of Lords funding row, I'm going to get you back on the programme. Jonathan Martin, a privilege. thank you for joining me on Talking Pines. Coming towards the end of the programme, I have a few seconds left, but it is time for Barrage the Farage. And I am going to have a look here and see what the first one is. Paul says, will the North ever get the levelling up it needs, especially in public transport, or is it another smokescreen? Whether it's a smokescreen or not, uh, you know, there was a genuine desire to level the country up. There's a genuine need to level the country up. If you think the public transport systems in small towns in the north of England that ever going to be like London, you're living in a dreamland. Will the UK ever get control of its borders? Let's ask Jonathan Marlon that one. Oh, God, I, mean, <laughs> I, I thought I was here for a drink. <laughs> I, I, think, I think, we're, well, I mean, you, you can judge that better than it's I can because it's, it's tough uh, and uh, it really is tough, particularly if you have a problem with the French. 
Um, which we do. Which we do. We've, but then again, we have for a thousand years. Yeah. Um, 30 seconds left on programme. Do you miss being an MEP? Do I miss being in Brussels and Strasbourg? Do I miss being in a city where even coffee bars refused to serve me? Where I was the most hated person that's ever been inside the institution? Booed every time I stood up. Yeah, I miss it terribly, really, because the theatre and the drama was magnificent. <laughs> We're out of time. 